0: I'm going to show you a couple of things on the, on the screen behind me. I want to show you some dictionary definitions of a few words. Grammar lesson this morning, right? Optimistic. Dictionary says it's disposed to take a favorable view of events or conditions and to expect the most favorable outcome. Optimize. Very similar. To make as effective, perfect, or useful as possible. To make the best of. And then I've chosen opportunity, an an appropriate or favorable time or occasion, a situation or condition favorable for attainment of a goal, a good position, chance, or prospect as for advancement or success. Now weave the threads, these threads of outlook and outcome, of optimism and opportunity into the fabric of a person's circumstances, and you have the makings of a winner. Let me illustrate this with something that appeared years ago in the Rotarian. The Rotarian described a bounty of $5,000 that had been offered for each wolf captured alive. That offer turned Sam and Jed into fortune hunters. Day and night, they scoured the mountains in the forests, looking intensely for their valuable prey. One night, exhausted from their rigorous search, they fell asleep dreaming of their potential fortune. Suddenly, in the middle of the night, Sam awoke to find that they were surrounded by a pack of 50 wolves with flaming eyes and bared teeth. Not wanting to waste precious time, Sam quickly nudged his friend Jed and with uncontrolled passion in his voice announced, Jed, wake up. We're going to be rich. (laughs) There's optimism and opportunity. Sam and Jed needed a good dose of both or they'd have been completely overcome by their circumstances. Amen? How many of us this morning could use a personal injection of these things when it comes to communicating the message of Christ? Someone has commented that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who wake up and say, good morning, Lord. And there are those who, whose first words are, good Lord, it's morning. morning. Which kind are you? Are you quick to see the opportunities available through your life circumstances? Or are you prone to miss opportunities because of your circumstances? And taking it even a little further, if you are seeing the opportunities, are they being used for self-promotion or for promoting what God wants you to promote? Paul was a man of God. Not only was he optimistic about the things of God, but he knew how to identify a great opportunity. No matter where he was, he saw opportunity for the spread of the gospel. But the most important thing about Paul was that he used every opportunity he saw for God and not for himself. He viewed his personal circumstances as God-ordained opportunities for the promotion of the good news of Christ. He once said, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Christ's or Jesus' sake. That's 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Let me ask you a question. Is that what you're doing on a daily basis? Are you doing that? Is that what we're interested in as a church? Is that what I'm doing as a communicator of the truth? What am I promoting? What are we collectively communicating? The gospel of Jesus or our own adapted version of it? Sure, we need to be optimistic. We need to see the opportunities before us. But more importantly, we must use those opportunities for the right purposes, right? There is an old Portuguese proverb that says this, hell is paved with good intentions and roofed with lost opportunities. My mind drifts back to 2004 when the Passion of the Christ movie was released. Do you remember that movie? Countless churches and ministries seized the opportunity that it created for the communication of Christ to the community. We were one of those churches. But I also recall it wasn't very long before we saw a subtle turn in the conversation that took place. Ever so slightly, the focus of the dialogue shifted from the passion of the Christ to the person of Mel Gibson. You remember that? Now, I'm not so sure that was his intention. But as we all know, whenever powerful opportunities are created for the spread of the gospel, Satan is silently and subtly lurking in the background, seeking to twist those opportunities for his own ends. How should we respond when and if that should happen to us? Today, I'd like to look at how Paul paved the way for us by his own example, And I pray that his bold and pioneering spirit rubs off on all of us. Turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, I hope you do, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're continuing on in our series on Philippians. And this morning we're going to look at verses 12 to 18. 12 to 18, follow along as I read them for you. Philippians 1, 12 to 18. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. What a great passage. One of my favorites in Philippians, by the way. Paul maintained an optimism here that puts most of us to shame. Prison. He saw opportunities where we would claim oppression. He exhibited excitement while we manufacture excuses. He viewed every situation that he found himself in as a divine appointment. Do you? We view everything with human apprehension. Sure, he was optimistic, whatever his situation, but of primary importance was his firm fix to proclaim Jesus Christ at all times, in all places, and at all cost. That was Paul's focus. Everything in his life, everything else in his life, paled by comparison to that. And that's the rub. On what rung of the priority ladder... Does proclaiming Jesus Christ rest in your life? That's the key question with this text. On what rung of the ladder does the proclamation of Jesus Christ and His good news rest in your life and in mine? Where does it come in? There was no question where it fell for Paul. In Acts chapter 20, verses 20 to 24, we read these words, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you but have taught you publicly and from house to house that would not be helpful to you, he says. I haven't hesitated to preach anything that wouldn't be helpful to you. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That was Paul's view. Friends, that's what it means to be a living sacrifice as Romans 12 puts it. You know, there's been a lot of focus placed on spiritual formation in recent years among Christians. Becoming like Christ. But I need to say this. If our spiritual formation does not include proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ of repentance and faith, both in word and in actions, we are not becoming like Christ no matter how much we think we're becoming like Christ. In fact, I would go so far to say is that we are living in direct disobedience to Christ's commands to make disciples if we're not doing it. Spiritual formation, at its core, is not about us. Spiritual formation is about Him working in us. And it's about how my becoming like Him affects others around me for His kingdom. Because I was created by Him and for Him. And so were you. Unfortunately, many believers have abandoned living for God's great purposes and settled for personal fulfillment and emotional stability, says Rick Warren. You know what he says? He says, that's narcissism, not discipleship. And I'm convinced that many of us in our quest for adopting the latest spiritual fad have confused those two things. Sometimes we think we're proclaiming the gospel of Christ, but really what we're doing is satisfying our own ego. The principle which enabled Paul to always rise above that trend was this, that proclaiming the gospel precludes promoting the person. Proclaiming the gospel precludes promoting the person. That premise enabled God to use Paul in every situation that he found himself in. Wouldn't you like to be used that way? Well, you can be, and you know how? How? By adopting Paul's pattern of thinking. Now, let me give you a few principal truths that emerge from this text in verses 12 to 18 that show us Paul's pattern of thinking. When our top priority is Christ and not ourselves, the cross begins to take precedence over our comfort. Is that right? And we start to believe the first thing in Paul's pattern of thinking here. Number one, proclaiming the gospel should overshadow our personal afflictions. Verses 12 to 14, look at them again. I want you to know, Paul says, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. What circumstances? He's in prison, right? So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak now the word of God without fear. Again, Rick Warren hits the target. He said, Jesus did not die on the cross so that we could be comfortable. So that we could live well-adjusted, comfortable lives. His purpose is far deeper than that. He wants to make us like himself before he takes us to heaven. This is our great privilege, our immediate responsibility, and our ultimate destiny. All of us, have excuses for why we don't share our faith. Don't we? The question is which one of us would like to measure our excuses for not doing it against Paul's example of doing it? You think that Paul would be considered exempt from preaching, considering the fact that he was in prison for doing that very thing? You think he'd get a buy on that one, right? But Paul's letter to the Philippians does not include a note from home saying, please excuse Paul from preaching for the next two years due to his confinement in prison and his heavy chains. We don't read that. His chains didn't hinder his communication of Christ. It unleashed it. The Greek word for circumstances here in verse 13, by the way, literally means the things dominating me. Paul's circumstances didn't dominate or debilitate him. He leveraged them for the cause of Christ. You see, Paul always wanted to go to Rome. You can read about it in the book of Acts. He wanted to go to Rome as a preacher, but he ended up going there as a prisoner. But little did the Romans realize that the chains that they thought would bind Paul actually unleashed him for the progress of the gospel as you sit here today as I stand here today answer the question in your own minds what circumstances in your life have you allowed to dominate you and drown out your passion for Christ? too busy too shy too uneducated too many kids too much opposition at work or in your family as if there wasn't for Paul in prison. Too sick? Too tired? Too scared? Too depressed? Don't you think that Paul was ever tired, scared, and depressed? Or do you think he was just one of these guys that was always up? He wasn't human listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 5 for even when we came into Macedonia our flesh had no rests but we were afflicted on every side conflicts without fears within that's a great definition of depression conflicts without fears within but God who comforts the depressed comforted us. Yes, Paul was tired. Yes, he was fearful. Yes, he was depressed. But he knew where to look. Friends, let's get real. We have no legitimate excuses, do we? There are many, many, many different ways to communicate Christ. Find the way that you can do it in your particular circumstances and do it. Doesn't mean you have to stand on a street corner and preach like I'm doing right now. There are a hundred thousand different ways or more to share the gospel in your particular circumstance. Let me give you an illustration. This week, I attended a round table down in Portland, which I do once a month with a bunch of pastors from the mid-coast area and down in the southern area, southern Maine area. A good friend of mine that I went to Bible college with, we rode together for years, Dan Coffin. He's the pastor of Small Point Church down in, um, in Small Point. And... Um, he was diagnosed recently with a rare genetic respiratory disease for which there is no cure. He's lost a third of his lung capacity at this point, and he has severely limited, it has severely limited his ability to serve his church the way he has for the last 20-plus years. I mean, this guy's into everything. He's involved in everything in the community. Now, because he has responded well to some new treatment they've come up with, he's going to be involved in a clinical trial and he's been making trips down south where others are dealing with the same issues come together. And he is already becoming known in that group, in that community, as Pastor Dan. Had a Jewish couple sitting at the lunch table with him the other day. A Jewish couple said to him, Pastor Dan, can you pass me the salt? They're already looking at him that way. He is truly recognizing his personal circumstances as opportunities to promote the gospel and using them as such. You think his lung capacity is going to stop him from preaching the gospel? No. No way. It's in him. Nothing just happens with God, does it? Nothing just happens with God. There are no accidents. He has allowed you to be where you are in your life's journey for a reason. Look for that reason. Look for it. Be creative with the opportunities that are right in front of you. Francis Bacon once said, a wise man will make more opportunities than he finds. Paul made everything an opportunity for the furtherance of Christ into his immediate world. The Greek word progress here. In verse 12, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. That word there literally means cutting forward. And it describes pioneer woodcutters who went out before the regular army cutting a road through seemingly impenetrable forests, thus making progress possible into regions otherwise unavailable. Or, in the familiar words of that theologian Captain Kirk, To boldly go where no man has gone before. That's what that word means. What can we learn here from Paul? Well, the first thing we can learn is personal afflictions can be powerful tools. Powerful tools. Verse 13 again. His imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. See, the circumstances of Paul's imprisonment for Christ not only failed to hinder his work, but it actually advanced it. It enabled him to reach into places he would otherwise have not been able to penetrate. The praetorian guard. There's no way he would have gotten in there. Unless he was imprisoned. His stand for Christ was becoming well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, it says, and the Praetorian Guard were the hand-picked men of the Imperial Guard, elite troops of Rome who were responsible to protect the emperor. They received special wages and privileges for their service and eventually became the most powerful body in the state. While Paul was under house arrest, presumably in Rome here, for two years, guess what? he was chained at the wrist to one of these Roman soldiers 24 hours a day. They were well acquainted with the reason that Paul was arrested. So the obvious question they would have on their lips was, who is Christ anyway? What do you think Paul capitalized on that opportunity? Wouldn't you like an opportunity to answer that question? Wouldn't you like people to come up to you and say, who is Jesus anyway? Well, you might have to be put into a very precarious position before you'll ever hear that question, like Paul. These guards change shifts every six hours, giving Paul the opportunity to share Christ with four of them every single day. you share Christ with four people every single day? Four different people every single day? That's what prison meant for Paul. In addition, they overheard his conversations with visitors. They heard him pray. They listened to him dictate the letters which are known to us now as Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. The result? The gospel went where no one would have ever dared take it. Paul says, I want to report to you, friends, that my imprisonment here has had the opposite of its intended effect. Instead of being squelched, the message has actually prospered. All the soldiers here and everyone else too found out that I'm in jail because of this Messiah. That piqued their curiosity and now they've learned all about him. Listen, friends, you can exile a man, but you cannot exile the truth. You can imprison the preacher, but you not what he preaches. The message is always of greater importance than the person giving it. Unless that person is Jesus. Paul never lost that attitude. Even when he was imprisoned for the second time, he wrote to Timothy these words in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Paul wrote, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. See, not only did Paul spread the gospel to his guards, but continued to bring it beyond the prison walls as well. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28 for a moment gives us a little glimpse into Paul's house arrest. Acts 28, verse 17, or verse 16. When we entered Rome, it says, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the custom of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Look at verse 23. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Verse 30. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters under house arrest and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Isn't it amazing what God will do? Even in prison. He preached to the guards. He preached to the Jews. He led a runaway slave to Jesus, Philemon. In the book of Philemon, The Letter to Philemon, in verse 10, we read these words, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. He was leading people to Christ even in his imprisonment. And he also, as I've mentioned, wrote the four letters which became Scripture from prison. Paul did more work in his two years of house arrest chained to a Roman guard than most of us will ever do in a lifetime. But it doesn't have to be that way. Warren Wiersbe wrote, the same God who used Moses' rod, Gideon's pitchers, and David's sling and used Paul's chains will be able to use you as well. What's he going to use in you? If we learn anything from Paul, it should be that our personal afflictions can be powerful tools. Whatever you're going through, God can use it as a powerful tool for his glory, for his kingdom. But also we learn that personal afflictions can bring powerful encouragement. In verse 14, he says that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear now. Because of the way that he handled his circumstances, Paul literally unleashed the rest of the church. A new boldness and confidence gave them courage to speak. They became daring and outspoken, speaking about Christ without fear. When they saw how God was greatly using Paul, even in his affliction, it caused them to trust the Lord more and more with their own lives. Whether you know it or not, the way that you respond to your circumstances affects other people around you. Some of you may feel that you are in chains. You might be physically disabled. You might hate your job. You might be embroiled in family problems, but those so-called chains may be God's platform for you to promote God's love in a way that you have never dreamed of. It all depends on your point of view. Here's a question for you. Are you knocking the opportunities or do you see opportunity knocking in your Christian life? How you respond ultimately will affect the people around you. Sometimes God puts chains on his people to advance them into places they wouldn't get to any other way. What are your so-called chains? Ladies, you feel bound by the fact that you have young children at home. What can I do? Susanna Wesley was the mother of 19 children before Pampers and Pull-Ups and Christian preschool were ever conceived. Yet out of that family came John and Charles Wesley, whose ministries turned the British Isles upside down. She must have done something right. At six weeks old, an infant by the name of Frances Jane was blinded by an illness. But her chains of darkness pioneered her into a lifetime, 85 years as a matter of fact, of proclaiming Christ through the writing of over 8,000 hymns. Blessed Assurance, To God Be the Glory, hymns like that which are timeless. They were written by Fanny Crosby. That's who she is, Francis Jane. Fanny Crosby, as most of you know her, never became bitter about her blindness at all. One time a preacher sympathetically remarked, I think it's a great pity that the master didn't give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. This is what she replied to him. Do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I should be born blind? Why? Asked the the clergyman. Because when I get to heaven, the first face that I'll ever see that will gladden my sight will be Jesus. Johnny Erickson Tata, you know her. Quadriplegic since her teen years. Is not bound by her chair even today. But through her books, her songs, her lectures, her inspirational artwork and ministry to the disabled brings the love of Christ to countless, countless people throughout the world. Though she is bound by physical paralysis, the Word of God has made limitless progress as she has allowed God to use her afflictions as a powerful tool for the spread of the gospel and encouragement to others. I just told you about my friend Dan. You know, sometimes we hear about these famous people and we say, well, we can't be like them but I told you about a real normal kind of guy that I know that's doing the same exact thing. What are you going to do? What am I going to do? The poet Byron wrote, Men are the sport of circumstances. Will your circumstances make you bitter or better? Will they make sport of you? God has ordained or permitted every circumstance in our lives that they can be, and, and they can be used for the promotion of Jesus Christ and his gospel. The proclamation of the gospel is never bound by our personal affliction. In fact, it ought to overshadow it. But there's something else Paul points to here in verses 15 to 18 is that proclaiming the gospel should overrule our personal ambition. Paul says some of those people that are preaching the word of God without fear, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking they're going to cause me distress in my imprisonment. See, Paul's example gave boldness to others. There was a problem, though, even in light of that. The motivation behind a lot of the preaching was questionable, according to this text, just as it is today. There seemed to be two categories of people that Paul refers to here, those who preached out of conceit and those who preached out of concern. The ones who preached out of conceit, all they wanted was glory. They wanted the big name, the big church, the big bucks, jealous of Paul's influence, and how now, him being out of commission, they thought they'd capitalize on the vacuum that his disappearance left and get followers for themselves. They may have even preached in order to keep Paul in jail. Their problems weren't necessarily doctrinal, they were personal. They may have been doctrinally orthodox in their preaching, but selfishly motivated, Paul says. Look at the characteristics here listed. They were jealous in verse 15. They were contentious. They were selfishly ambitious in verse 17. They were pretentious in verse 18. They were interested in only promoting themselves, not the gospel of Christ. We so need to guard against that tendency today, don't we? It's too easy to fall into the pride trap and begin to create disciples of our own or our own particular church or our own particular denomination. To our shame, the average Christian today is more apt to follow personalities rather than Christ's. It's a celebrity culture we live in, isn't it? No question about it. But then again, that's nothing new, it always has been. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. I can just hear Paul's anger ratcheting up here. Verse 13 Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What's he saying? Now, there's nothing wrong with having a favorite teacher or a preferred teaching style, but if you're following any person more than you are following Christ, you will eventually shipwreck your faith. And that kind of party spirit causes strife and dissension in the church. And it was happening in the Corinthian church. Oh, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. Well, I'm above all of you. I'm of Christ. Right? That's what they were saying. And it causes strife and dissension and a lack of unity. I appreciate the candor of Max Lucato, who recently said in an interview with Christianity Today, he says, I'm ashamed of the fact that I sometimes want to have the biggest church in town or a book on the bestseller list. I take too much pride in that. Knowing it was an issue for him, he said, I confessed it to the church. I was sick of always wanting to know if, the church, if our church was as big as the others. And he continues, he says, a man gave me some great advice. He reminded me that when another church does well, we all do well. After we said that, I suddenly saw Oak Hills, his church, as one tiny corpuscle in the body of Christ. Isn't that true? That's the way Paul viewed it. And we must as well. There are all kinds of false motives behind preaching today. All kinds. There are those who use the name of Christ as a mask for their own ends. They prostitute the gospel for their own agenda, their own gain. Beware of preachers who preach with ulterior motives. And how can you tell? How can you tell if their motives are pure or not? Well, you can ask a few questions. Are they interested in communicating the truth or gaining popularity? That's a good question to ask. Do they have the attitude of John the Baptist, who, as he pointed to his own disciples toward, his own disciples toward Christ, said these words, He must increase and I must decrease. It's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to know the true motives behind any person's words. I might not even know what the motive is behind what I say all the time. The Scripture tells us that. We don't even know ourselves. Self-deceit is a very real problem. Most of us are pretty good at self-deception. But rest assured that God knows our hearts through and through. Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Paul alerts us to the fact that there will always be those who preach out of a personal conceit. But there's another group that was driven by nobler motives, Paul says. There were those who preached out of concern. Look at what motivated them in verses 15 to 18. They were motivated by goodwill. motivated by love, motivated by loyalty, by sincerity, and they were motivated by the truth, Paul says. They didn't have mixed motives other than the glory of God. That was their, their whole focus of attention. Proclaiming the gospel precludes promoting the person. Remember I said that earlier? Even when the motives were wrong, though, Paul still found reason to celebrate in prison, I love his response in verse 18. Literally, he says, well, what do I care? What do I care? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Can you say that? Could I say that? Paul had only one thing on on his mind at this point in his life. The promotion of Christ. That was far more important than any circumstance he was in. He didn't care about the motives of his peers in this particular letter. It was that Christ was being promoted. I believe Paul's life verse was 1 Corinthians 2, 2. I'm just guessing but it seems to just kind of summarize his whole life for i determined to know nothing among you except jesus christ and him crucified yeah there was no envy here of, of paul no arrogance no frustration no threats and that, my friends, enabled him to approach life able to proclaim Christ in any and every situation that he found himself in. Proclaiming the gospel overshadowed his personal afflictions, it overruled his personal ambition, and it and allowed him to overlook the personal attacks against him as well. And that's the final thing here is that proclaiming the gospel overlooks the personal antagonism. Paul says, "What?" Do I care? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Antagonism never rests when a person aligns themselves with the preaching of Christ. Did you know that? So how are you to respond to that? Just the way Paul did Paul was able to rejoice in the fact that Christ was being preached even at his own expense. Though there was rising antagonism against him, even by those who preached Christ, he didn't let his personal feelings cloud the issue. As long as what was said about Christ was accurate, what was said about Paul didn't matter. I appreciate the counsel of a seasoned pastor who once said these words. He said, when people mess with the message, they need to be rebuked, exposed, and corrected. But when they mess with the messenger, they need to be ignored. Paul's not saying that they were preaching a false gospel here. They obviously must have been preaching a true one because Paul would have corrected it. But just because they were preaching out of spite for Paul it didn't matter to him. I don't care if they don't like me. I don't care if they think that they're all high and mighty because I'm in prison. I don't care if they get a bigger church than I have. Christ is proclaimed and that's all that matters to me. You want to follow a person like that, right? His values were right. The importance of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ far outweighed his personal consideration. He would rejoice in anything if Christ was magnified. It's a matter of historic record that the two great English evangelists, John Wesley and George Whitefield, disagreed on doctrinal matters. Not fundamental ones that involved the gospel and salvation and eternal salvation, Peripheral ones, but doctrinal matters. Both of them were very successful preaching to thousands of people and seeing multitudes come to Christ. Involved in great awakenings. It is reported that somebody asked Wesley one time if he expected to see George Whitefield in heaven. And the evangelist replied, no, I do not. Then you don't think that George Whitefield is a converted man, they asked him. Of course he's a converted man, Wesley said. But I do not expect to see him in heaven because he will be so close to the throne of God and I so far away that I won't be able to see him. That's the right attitude, right? Though he differed with his brother in some matters, Wesley did not have any envy in his heart nor did he seek to oppose Whitfield's ministry. Can you say that? Can I say that? Someone once said, The will of God will not lead you where the grace of God will not provide for you. What circumstances has the will of God led you into right now in your life? Can they be used for the promotion of the gospel of Christ? I once found these words in a small pamphlet. At no point is the Christian life a matter of doing your best in an impossible situation. Rather, it is a case of God doing His best in and through you. His power in place of our weakness, His love in place of our resentment, His wisdom in place of our ignorance, His optimism in place of our pessimism. His opportunities in place of our defeatism. His allow, it's allowing him to make us more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, carpe diem. Seize the day. I heard a story of a marine officer who when he saw that he and his men were completely encircled by the opposition, said these things. men, We are surrounded by the enemy. Don't let a single one of them get away. What are the enemies surrounding your life today? Don't let them get away. Use them as God-given opportunities to proclaim Jesus Christ. Friends, the gospel is more important than your physical afflictions. It's more important than your personal ambitions. And it's more important than the powerful antagonism that you you might face if you're out front with your faith. Because the gospel says, the Bible says, Jesus says that the gospel is more important than your life. You know, someday we may have to face what some of the people in the Middle East are facing right now. Suppose someone was going to chop off your head because of your faith. We don't know how we would react to that situation until we're in it. But we know how we're reacting to the situations we're in now in our lives, which are far less intense. You and I may never have to die for the gospel. But the big question is, are you and I willing to live for it?